In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, God willing, today we're going to start talking about um, a very important topic as it comes to our faith, to understand what is the evidence of the resurrection. You know, there's a lot of things that we accept on faith as Christians, um, but then when we're asked about it, maybe from other people, and they ask us, who, who, who are doubting the idea of the resurrection of Christ, and maybe we don't know how to answer. Also, the idea of the resurrection of Christ is really the, the central and most important uh, point about really all of Christianity, because all of our hope is in the resurrection. St. Paul actually said that if the resurrection did not happen, then all of our faith is futile, and there's no point in us even having any kind of faith or belief, because our whole hope is about the resurrection. So as Christians, the idea of the resurrection is such an important thing. And again, um, we often accept it just by faith because something that we're taught and something that the Bible preaches. Um, but, but sometimes we, we would like more. We want to we find out some more information or maybe even to answer um, other people. So we're going to speak about a few points. One is, can we prove that the resurrection happened, the resurrection of Christ? Uh, what are some people who are skeptical about it? What do they say about the resurrection? What are the facts? Um, what are some hostile theories that are trying to explain the resurrection kind of in another way? Like maybe it didn't happen the way that the Bible t teaches. Maybe there's another explanation uh, for it. Um, and then we'll conclude. Can we prove the resurrection? So an important thing when it comes to faith is to distinguish between proof and evidence. Um, our, you know, oftentimes when people are thinking about proof, they're thinking in terms of scientific proof or proof without any kind of doubt, that it's like completely 100% sure, certain, that something has happened. Um, as opposed to evidence, where it's like something that's pointing to something, like there's supporting evidence that something could have happened, but it's not 100% proof. And really, when you speak about anything spiritual or anything miraculous, um, it's very hard to define what proof means, because so often um, our understanding of proof is defined by our understanding of proof is defined by really the scientific method um, and it's really focusing on the physical world. Like if you want to know that something happened, you look for physical evidence maybe that something has actually happened, like you actually observe things. Whereas when it comes to the spiritual, the supernatural, it's much more difficult to do that because by, very, by the very definition, something that is miraculous or supernatural doesn't fall into any well-known category of, of things that we're used to experiencing or that we're used to categorizing or understanding in the world. For instance, I'll give you an example. Like, um, When you have like some kind of physical phenomenon and you want to prove whether this is uh, something that's happening or not, or you want to prove some kind of scientific theory, um, one way you do it is you do experiments. And you do experiments, let's say, um, I'm going to do an experiment over here, and another person does the same experiment over here, and we try to verify that we have the similar results, for instance. You can't do that when it comes to faith, right? You can't test God in this way. You say, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to test God in a certain way, and he's going to respond a certain way. So it's important here for us to, to understand that we're not trying to show that there is proof. We're trying to show the evidence. We're trying to show the things that are pointing us to that the resurrection actually happened. Uh, there is, a, there is a, a debate that I saw. I might have mentioned this before. There was a debate that I watched between an atheist um, and a Christian. And the atheist said, I'm going to prove to you that God doesn't exist. And he said a prayer there at the podium in front of everybody. And he asked God that if he exists, that he would come and he would appear 
to all of the people, thereby proving that God exists, okay? And certainly nothing happened. There was no, God didn't appear, there was no miracle, there was nothing. And so his um, conclusion, this atheist, was that, look, this is a proof that God doesn't exist. But the, the assumption that he made is that if God exists, he's going to behave like a human being. He's going to behave like how we would behave. Maybe if we were in a situation similar to that, and someone was claiming that we didn't exist, then we would quickly make ourselves known. We would say, no, here I am, right? Whereas God is not necessarily going to behave this way. Also, God does not behave um, like a physical phenomenon. Again, back to the idea of science. Like, when, when, when we study science, we're, we're, we're studying something that's mindless. We're, we're studying something that just exists and, and operates by some very basic rules. And we try to investigate it and understand it, to understand how, how the world operates. What are the rules by which the world operates? But when we're talking about God, God does not operate according to rules, right? Because God is a person. He has a mind, and he can choose to make himself known. He can choose to hide himself. He can choose to speak. He can choose to stay silent. He can choose, right? So if one day someone is speaking and God appears to him, and the next day someone is speaking and God doesn't appear, right? That doesn't say anything about whether God exists or not. All it says is that God chose not to uh, make himself known. Like an example you can kind of see about this is, let's say you have a person who, you know, you call them on the phone and you leave them a voicemail, uh, and that person didn't respond to you, right? But you just left them a voicemail. You wouldn't conclude that that person doesn't exist because he didn't respond. You just say he chose not to answer or he wasn't available to answer, right? So when you're dealing with a person, it's very different than when you're dealing with like a scientific quantity, okay? In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when we speak about our faith, right, faith is necessary in order for us to do what God is asking us to do. Because if we didn't believe, or at least suspect, or or feel like there is a strong evidence for the existence of God, and that there is a strong evidence for the truth of the Bible, then why is it that I would even attempt to follow it? Why is it that I would try to obey? Why is it that I would listen? Why was it I believe anything if I didn't have faith that God is real and God exists? And um, having faith is an important part of Christianity. And we need to understand this, that we do not live according to proof. We do not worship God because there is definitive proof. We worship God out of faith. And even the scripture speaks about the importance of faith. And um, it says that when, when the Lord Christ was in a certain area, he was not able to perform any miracles because the people lacked faith. And the word that was used was can't. Like he could not do it because of a lack of faith. So it says something about the importance of our faith. It is, it is good to know evidence. It is good to have like like reason, to use reason. But reason can only get us so far, right? The The leap of faith that we have to take is to believe that what God said is true and that through um, doing what he asked us to do, we will then discover the fullness of truth. You know, those people who truly see God and believe him are not the ones who waited for all of the evidence and for all of the proof and everything and then, having compiled all of this, decided that they were going to follow God. Instead, they said what... I'm going to trust that what he says is true, 
and I begin to do what he asked, and it is through this that I discover. It is through this that I understand. I don't wait for understanding first, and then I begin to do. I begin to do, and then I gain understanding. Okay. So what are some things? I was just searching online about some of the things that, I, that people were saying about, um, about Christianity, about the Bible, about the resurrection, and so on. And here are some things that I found, just out of curiosity, so we can read them. It says what? This is the first person. It says, first, if you actually read the Bible, rather than regurgitating it, you would realize that he did not die. They put him in a cave to let him recover from what they gave him to drink. Also, he did his work and did not need to bring attention to himself after that. Why would he? It is reported that he lived a comfortable life since his family was quite wealthy and died around 80. I'm not sure at all how such a person came up with these things, but this is what they believe. Okay, and he considered to be self-evident that this is what happened. It's clear and known. Another person says, I believe that Jesus' friends removed the body and buried it in an unmarked place so that it wouldn't fall into unwanted hands. One thing is sure. After being clinically dead for three days, he stayed dead except in the imagination of superstitious people. Right? So this person feels like it is just superstition. There's no evidence for it. Um, and, and instead, his body was just stolen away by his, by his disciples and buried someone else, somewhere else. Another person says, actually, since the entire thing is just a story, the question is moot. This is like asking whether or not Frodo really did dispose of the ring or not. Yes is the answer to both questions within the context of works of fiction. So the whole thing is just a fictitious. Another person said, no, he did not resurrect. Jesus Christ was a pagan, pagan sun god, not the Messiah of Judaism. Read the Torah to learn more. Only you can tell yourself the true answer. So many, many different opinions. And a lot of those opinions are really not necessarily based on anything. Um, they're just based on ideas. Why is it that people would be opposed to the idea of the resurrection? Because if the resurrection was true, then you have to take all of the scripture seriously. If the resurrection was true, then this man, Jesus Christ, is really God, which means that everything he said is true which then demands of us to live a certain way, right? It demands of me. If, if I believe the resurrection actually happened, and I believe that Jesus Christ really is God, then that means everything he said as God is binding on me. And often we do not want anything to be binding on us. I want to be God. I want to be um, the one who defines for myself how I choose to live, what I want to do and what I do not want to do. And I do not want to surrender my will to submit myself to any God, to any deity, because maybe I don't approve or want what that deity is asking me to do. So people can get very um, uh, defensive when it comes to religion because it's more than just about a curiosity or faith. What is it that you think happened? It requires something of me. It causes me to have to respond to it. it causes me to have to take some kind of action based on this. And that's why understanding it is so important. Okay? What are some of the facts that we know about the resurrection? So in Matthew 27, it says, So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Okay, so we know that when the Lord Christ was buried, he was put in a tomb, and this tomb was secured with a seal, and that there was a guard that was placed there at the tomb. Okay, and we know that the Romans did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. They didn't believe that he was a miracle worker. All of this to them was nonsense, right? So they believed that he was a man, and so they didn't want anyone to 
um, to disturb the tomb in any way. So they put a seal on the tomb so that they could, could tell if somebody opened it, and they put a guard there so no one could approach it. We also know, according to the biblical account, right, that when the resurrection happened, the seal of the tomb was broken, okay? So that means that someone was able to move this very large uh, rock which was covering the entrance of the tomb, okay? Um, and we know that the guards were not there, right? Um, so this, the consequence of breaking the seal of the tomb would have been very severe, right? For the Lord, for the disciples to go and to have the boldness and the, the energy to be able to go there, to confront the guards, to break the seal of the tomb, to remove this rock, to remove the body of Christ, this is what we are saying that they did. At the time, the disciples were in disarray, right? In fact, at the time of the crucifixion, they all fled. Uh, St. Peter denied him three times. It wasn't, it wasn't really in the mindset of the disciples at that time to be bold and to go and to try to uh, you know, overcome the, the Roman soldier to break the seal, to go in there and to, um, to steal the body. The other thing that we know is the tomb indeed was empty. Okay? So um, this man, Paul Althaus, he says what? The resurrection could have not been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Okay? The idea that the tomb was indeed empty was not really a fact that it was being con there was no contention over it. It was accepted that the body of the Lord was not there, right? Because if the body was somewhere, then someone would have just brought the body and said, here is the body, right? They, 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 everyone believed that the tomb was empty, right? Some people had different theories of why it might be empty, but the idea of the tomb being empty was established. Both Jewish and Roman sources and traditions admit an empty tomb. Those resources range from Josephus to a compilation of 5th century Jewish writings called the Toledoth Jeshu. When, when you take sources that are coming from hostile, like hostile sources, like people who are, are not believers, but they can verify the veracity of a claim. So when you have someone like Josephus, Josephus was a very famous Jewish historian. And so he is writing about events that happened at the time. So for him, who is not a believer, who is not a Christian, who has no... Uh, you know, has no interest in the idea that the tomb was empty because he doesn't believe that the Lord, that Jesus is, the, is God. So for him to verify, in fact, that the tomb was empty is an important piece of information to say, you know what, maybe it really was empty, right? Because even Jewish people are claiming that it was empty. Another scholar, he says, this is positive evidence from a hostile source, which is the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits a fact decidedly not in his favor, then that fact is genuine, right? It's the same thing like today, like if you, if you go to a very liberal media outlet, you know, and they say something good about Republicans, or you go to a Republican news source and they say something good about Democrats, probably it's true, right? Because they have no interest in saying good things about each other. So if something good is said, then most likely that thing is true. So if you have someone who's Jewish, who is saying, yes, the tomb actually was empty, then very likely it is true. These are contemporary sources at the time. Another fact is that the large stone was moved. And this stone was large. It says in Mark 16, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us, right? How could anyone have, have moved this stone without alerting the guards? You know, the disciples and these women also who went to the tomb they were not going to have a war with the guards, 
right? They, 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 they weren't going to do this. Actually, after the crucifixion of Christ, they all went into hiding, and they all remained in hiding until the Pentecost. So again, they were not bold. They had no resources by which to do this. The, the stone was, being, um, was guarding the tomb, was covering the tomb. Another fact is that Christ appeared to many, many people. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Okay? So these people who were claimed to be eyewitnesses, right? St. Paul, he, he wrote this to the Corinthians. When he wrote this, right, all those people that he is claiming to be eyewitnesses, they, they, many of them would be still alive, right? So if, if they were alive and all of this was fabricated, then they would have come forward and said, no, this did not happen. I did not see anything that was said, right? Whenever you have eyewitnesses, you go to them and you ask them what happened. Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul, he was one of those witnesses. He was one of the people that saw Christ, and he was a hostile witness because he did not believe in Christianity. He was a persecutor of Christians. So again, he had no reason to accept uh, the, the, the fact of the resurrection of Christ if what had happened to him was not authentic, right? If he did not actually see the Lord and hear his voice and be converted. Another scholar, he says, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. There is more manuscript evidence for um, the, the scripture than any other book in history, right? Because obviously at the time, there were no printing presses, there was no internet. So people, when they wanted to distribute a book, they would make a copy of it and they would distribute it, right? So the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was more copies of these documents made and found than any other text in history. There are other books that are taught in you know, English class and schools, like Homer, Homer's Odyssey, or Homer's Iliad, something, a book that's studied in school. Do you ever remember, any of us who grew up here and, um, and, and had to read these books, do you ever remember the teacher saying, we're not sure if Homer actually wrote these? You know? There is far less evidence for Homer having actually existed and having written these, these stories than Christ and the stories that are written about him in the scripture. Far more evidence. And yet when it comes to scripture, a lot of people will come and they will be skeptical. And they say, no, well, maybe he didn't actually live or maybe this didn't actually happen. We have many eyewitnesses. You have many copies of the same manuscript. And we have many people who could refute this at the time. And it wouldn't have propagated till now, 2,000 years later, as being something that is believed by so many people. One of the most important evidences about the truth of the resurrection comes in the life of the disciples themselves. Okay, If you look at how the disciples lived after the resurrection, it says something about what they believed. Right? If they were lying, or if they are the ones who actually stole the body of Christ from the tomb, or any other kind of conspiracy that would have happened involving the apostles lying because they wanted people to believe that he was Christ. Maybe we can say, okay, the apostles had some interest in deceiving. They wanted people to believe that he was resurrected. Okay, But what about their own lives? All of the disciples, the apostles, how many of them were martyred for this faith that they had? Right? They went around their entire life. St. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul, 
He spent his entire life preaching after that point, and he was uh, suffered so much for the sake of his ministry. So how could how could we explain the fact that all of these church leaders um, accepted so much pain and suffering in order for them to preach this message, this gospel message, and the message of the resurrection of Christ, unless they believed that it was true, right? They had to have believed that it was true, because why would they why would they sacrifice themselves for it? It's, uh, they were beaten, stoned to death, thrown to lions, tortured, crucified, right? And they laid down their lives. This is the proof, right? This is the, the strongest, one of the strongest proofs of the resurrection is the lives of the apostles themselves. And we see that all throughout the history of the church, you know? And that's one reason why martyrdom is such a powerful witness. That's actually why we call the martyrs witnesses. And the Arabic word for, for martyr is the same word as the word witness, Right? Because when you see someone being martyred, it is because they are a witness to God. They are a witness for God. They, they, they prove the existence of God in their own sacrifice and what it is that they are doing by giving up their lives. So what are some of the hostile theories against the idea of the resurrection? The first one is the theory of the wrong tomb. Okay? This theory assumes that the women who reported that the body was missing had mistakenly gone to the wrong tomb. So that the women that went early in the morning on Sunday, when they went to the tomb, they realized that the, the tomb was empty, that they actually went to the wrong tomb. Okay? But if this was true, then someone would have just directed them to the actual tomb. They said, no, this is not the tomb. This is the right tomb over here, and the body is still inside, and there has been no resurrection. Okay? There's also no way that the Roman guards would have been under the wrong tomb. Okay? So if it's a simple mistake, then the Jewish authorities would have simply corrected it, and this uh, idea of the resurrection of Jesus would never have propagated at all. It would have just remained um, just a debunked theory. Another theory is a theory of hallucination. Okay? Another attempted explanation claims that the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection were either illusions or hallucinations. Okay? But number one, if this were the case then where was the actual body, right? It, it, someone could produce the body. Anyone who wanted to end the claim that Jesus Christ was resurrected in the body could have just produced the body of Jesus and they would have ended any claim that he was resurrected. Again, so if this idea of hallucinations was true, that would have been the case. Also, this would have to be a group hallucination. This would have to be a hallucination of a large number of people that all claimed and believed. Remember, the Lord Christ, he appeared to the disciples, and he appeared to St. Thomas, right? He appeared to 500 people throughout the city, and they all claimed to have seen him, right? So what was, how is it that all of this could have been hallucination with all these people at the same time? Another theory is called the swoon theory, okay? This, another theory popularized by Venturini several centuries ago, is often quoted today, which says that Jesus didn't die, he merely fainted from exhaustion and loss of blood. Everyone thought him dead, but later he resuscitated and the disciples thought it to be a resurrection. So the idea that he would be on the cross and suffering, and when, when it came time for the Roman soldiers, they were told what? Um, we cannot leave the bodies of, the, of the, the, the criminals on the cross because the Passover is coming. And so we can't leave these bodies on the cross. So make sure that they're dead. So they went to break the legs of the two thieves. And when they came to Christ, they found that he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. So the idea that a person 
who is hanging there on the cross, whom, whom the Roman soldiers declared to be dead, and then they took him down, they wrapped him, and they put him in a tomb and closed the tomb, and that several days later, he, even though he had no medical attention, and he was suffering from all his wounds of crucifixion, that he wasn't actually dead, but then he just, on his own, without any medical treatment, he got up again, and he was okay, right? That's, that's essentially what the swoon theory is. One person, he said what? It is impossible that a being who had stolen half-dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening, and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life. Saying even if something like this could have happened, which is extremely unlikely, he would definitely not be resurrected in power. It's not like the people would see him as being a person of power, a person who overcame death. They would see him as a person who's about to die and collapse, right? Someone in need of medical treatment. So again, this one theory, it doesn't really hold any water. There's not really a lot of, like, it's, it's not very credible. These are just three of the theories. I didn't want to go um, very much more, right? These are only three of the theories. Um, but you can see that many, many people throughout history have tried to find explanations for why this, the, the, the tomb was empty. But really for us as Christians, we look at the empty tomb, and for us this is our salvation, the idea that the Lord did not remain in the tomb. One of the things that frightens people the most, if not the most frightening thing in the world, is death. And Christ came and he says, I have conquered death, right? And he conquers death, and he demonstrated that he conquered death. He didn't just say that he conquered death. He didn't just speak and say words that were not backed up by real evidence. So he is, we call him the first fruit. He is the first fruit who has risen from the dead, meaning he is the first one that demonstrated the power of the resurrection in himself so that we all will participate in the resurrection with him on the last day. So he showed us this evidence and this proof. He, he could have just come and says, you know what, I have, I'm going to resurrect you. But many people might look at that and be skeptical. What do you mean we are going to resurrect? What do you mean that our bodies are going to rise from the dead again? That's not something that maybe is easy to comprehend. But when Christ himself demonstrated the resurrection in himself so that all of us in the world still living can look upon how much he was really dead, how much he suffered in his death, and that he was buried, and many people saw him be buried, and no one questioned the fact that he was dead and buried at the time, and for him to be able to rise again from the dead, this shows us the power of God. This shows us that God is the one who gives life, that he is the one who gives life. The death itself cannot hold him. So for us, again, the belief in the resurrection is very, very important. And we look at just very briefly some of these theories of the, the, the things that are claiming that the resurrection did not happen. And we look at the evidence of the resurrection to help us to understand it better. Christ's resurrection is real. Okay, this other uh, English scholar, his name is uh, Brooke Foss Westcott, he said, raking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency and the proof of it, which essentially means that the only way that you might consider that it's not true is because you don't want it to be true. You don't want to accept it, and so you don't look at it in an unbiased way. 
Anyone who really looks at this in, a, in an unbiased way will find there is more evidence for this historical event than for many, many other events in history that we just take for granted. And we don't question the existence of certain people or the, the existence of certain events that have happened in history. But because the resurrection of Christ is so critically important, and again, like I said, demands a response from us, this is why it is questioned. Because if it is true, then that means that maybe I'm living my life in the wrong way. Maybe I have to change the way that I live, and I don't want to. So I try to read into it things that might cause it to be false, th that I might think it to be false. The final point I want to make has to do with the personal experience. Um, the effects of the resurrection can still be felt. And as I said before, we don't wait to understand and then we believe, but we begin to believe and then we understand. Anyone who has sought out a personal experience with the Lord and to seek out God in prayer and by, by following what it is he's asked us to do in the path of salvation, we begin to experience him in a way that confirms for us the reality of the resurrection apart from the historical facts. You know, and this goes to a very personal experience. In Psalm 34, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Our faith is not simply based on historical facts. Our faith is not simply based on the fulfillment of prophecy and things that are written in a book. Our faith is based on a real interaction and experience with the Lord. So even though these evidences might be things to help motivate us and encourage us, encourage us to develop and, and experience this, ex this relationship with the Lord, but their daily relationship with God is really the, the proof and the manifestation of the existence of God for each believer. So someone who has tasted the relationship with Christ is not um, relying on any evidence or any proof or any historical document. Their, their experience with Christ is real. For instance, you have a friend, and you know that this friend is real, and you see him every day, and someone claims comes to you and claims that this person doesn't even exist. And he brings to you all this kind of evidence, all this circumstantial evidence, all these things that it's like um, can be interpreted in so many different ways. But he comes and says, look, your friend doesn't even exist. I don't find his phone number here. I don't know. I don't have any history of him doing this or this or this. I can't find his social security number in the records. I get all this evidence that he comes and says he, he doesn't exist. Are we going to be shaken by that evidence? Like, is that evidence going to really be like, oh, you, you know, you're right. Maybe he doesn't actually exist. The fact that I interact with him every day makes me not even consider that these things might be true. There's another explanation. There's a mistake. There, there's the wrong interpretation of the facts. There's whatever it might be because I know for certain that my friend is real. So our belief in the Lord, even though it can be supported by facts and can be supported by history and can be supported by prophecy and can be supported by all these things in which there is no contradiction, but for the true believer... That should not be the extent of faith. It is not just a faith of understanding. It is a faith that is built upon a real experience with the Lord in our daily lives that when we pray, we hear him responding. And I don't mean hear audibly. I mean we experience God. We experience God in our circumstances, in our life. He brings us comfort and peace in our heart that is palpable, that we can, that we can experience and know that this is the Lord who is, who is doing this. This is the Lord who is speaking to me. So for anyone who has gone beyond just the preliminary facts of the faith and has actually entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, their faith is strengthened beyond just the facts, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in each one.
And glory be to God forever. Amen. Does anyone have any comments or questions before we conclude? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's when he believed on the road to Damascus. Okay, one final thing um, is um, starting next week, and God willing, we're going to start a new series, which I'm very excited about. It's going to be, it's called Orthodox Afterlife. It's based on a book um, written by John Habib. John Habib, he's, uh, he's a person who lives in the diocese. He compiled all kinds of writings and verses from the Bible, writings of the church fathers, and actually uh, near-death experiences that have happened to various people throughout history um, that all kind of um, give us an image and a picture about what is death and what is heaven and um, a lot of very interesting things. So um, I'm really excited about this topic, and God willing, next week, um, for several weeks, we'll be talking about it based on this book, Orthodox Afterlife. And, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of us or all of us have a lot of questions about what, th what that looks like. So um, I'm hoping that in this series we can discuss some of those things. Yes. Uh, you don't have to have read it before, um, and I'm going to cover a lot of things, but I still recommend reading it. It's a very, I mean, we won't be able to cover everything, but I, still I, I recommend reading it, but you don't have to read it before next week. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O God, for this day, for allowing us to come to your house. We thank you, O Lord, for the gift of the resurrection, which is the foundation of our faith, that when we come to your house, O Lord, we remember that this is a place for those who are immortal, those who have been given eternal life, those, O Lord, who will never die. We thank you, O God, for this gift you have given us, one that we do not deserve. We ask, O Lord, that you place within us the joy of the resurrection each and every day, Then, even while we struggle with many things in this world, that we see beyond them, and we see how much you have given us victory over death and suffering and pain, and ultimately every problem that we have has an ultimate solution in you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Have mercy on our souls. Forgive us our sins. And hear us as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.